you can be yourself and you can grow as a person and you can hold yourself accountable and you can act with integrity and you can develop your communication skills and your discipline. You can also be fallible and it's okay to make mistakes. And that was an environment that was really amazing to be a part of professionally. The emphasis on personal and professional development was just so impactful. I was always hoping that work could be like that and it turned out it could. I don't think I actualized my potential while I was in Vector, but goddamn, that stuff sunk in somewhere because it shows up a lot in my day-to-day now. We started around one conference table. Fast forward, we employ 165 people in 25 states. We have a venture fund, we have a debt financing company. We are the official sponsor of e-commerce week in LA, endorsed by the mayor and the council. No debt, no board, no investors, bootstrapped the whole thing, super cash conscious all along the way. Could there be a straight line between selling and managing with Cutco Vector and building an eight-figure digital marketing agency? For Tony Del Mercado, the answer has been a resounding yes. Great teams are built through recruiting, training, and developing others. Tony learned the core strategies for these things as a Cutco sales rep and Vector district manager. Today, he helps lead the fastest growing digital marketing agency in the U.S. with over $23 million in direct revenue and continuing to increase annually. Tony understands how to build a great team, and most of his work is done remotely. What he offers is a blueprint for creating a successful organization from scratch in today's marketplace. I'm happy to bring you all today the experiences and insights of Tony Del Mercado. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. My guest today is Tony Del Mercado. And I had a chance to work closely with Tony during his Cutco Vector days as he started here in the Bay Area where I am located. Tony worked in Cutco from 2004 to 2009. He advanced straight from rep to district manager in about 10 months with the company and produced about $2.7 million in sales over several years as a successful district manager in Stockton, California and in Las Vegas, Nevada. He experienced several business ventures after his days with Cutco, ultimately co-founding Hawk Media in 2014 
And Hawk is now the fastest growing and most widely recognized digital marketing agency in the country. They are experiencing vast success, which Tony will talk about. He traces a lot of that back to his lessons learned from Cutco. I'm really excited to have you as a guest on the podcast today, Tony. Welcome and thank you. Thank you, Dan. It's uh, it's a pleasure and it's uh, really exciting to bring some of these thoughts full circle. I, I can't say enough about Cutco and Vector and I'm sure the people in my org are in some way sick of hearing about it, but hopefully your listeners get some perspective here that is, uh, that's valuable. Yes. Well, I got good news for you. I'm not sick of hearing about it. <laughs> I'm fired up about all the great success stories that are out there that uh, look back on their Cutco days very fondly, and I appreciate you being willing to share your insights. Absolutely. Yeah. Tell us first about your background before Cutco, because I know you, you're not from California. You know, tell us about how you ended up in California. Yeah, the short version is that I grew up in Minnesota. Uh, I went to school in Wisconsin, and I wanted to be an architect. And so I moved out to Boston, and I went to school for architecture, and I worked at a firm in the north end of Boston. And I happened to work for a really progressive firm that was LEED certified and Mac-based. And this is early 2000s, which at the time was pretty novel, especially on the East Coast. And it became clear to me that I wanted to be a West Coast architect. And so I had been accepted uh, to go to Cal Poly down in Slow to finish up my architecture degree. And my girlfriend at the time, her uncle lived right on the Santa Rosa-Sonoma border. And so we thought we'd move West and maybe just enjoy what the world had to offer for a few months before I got back into the mix. And, you know, I bought a used undercover police van, as it turns out, that was uh, ridden with some bullet holes and sold all my stuff and had a massive, you know, book long journey about driving coast to coast, which is probably a topic for a different podcast, but ended up in uh, Santa Rosa. And that's, that's how I got out West is I wanted to be a West Coast architect. So we just packed all our stuff and we bailed. Yeah, that's cool. So you were not the typical sort of 18 year old applicant who came to Cutco. You already had had several years of schooling and experience, and you also were not from the area, no connections. How did you end up hearing about Cutco and getting started? When I got out West, I picked up a paper, the Santa Rosa, I don't know, you would probably know the name of the paper. Press Democrat. Press Democrat. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Picked it up and was looking for jobs. And, you know, I had done manual labor. I had done service work and I was always a guy that was told I had decent enough communication skills and was good at sales. And I saw an ad for, I don't know what the minimum was at the time, but it seemed pretty nice. And I was like, cool, X dollars per appointment. And that's cool. So I went to uh, an interview at the Santa Rosa office, which I think was actually in Rohnert Park for what it's worth. Uh, yeah. And uh, I met Kristen Sunday. And I I was super excited. And that's how I came to know Vector Marketing and Cutco. For frame of reference for anybody listening, I was the division manager for the Bay Area at the time. And so, you know, I I worked directly with Kristen on a regular basis. And so, you know, I got to know you in those early days as a a, uh, top sales rep right out of the gate. How did you start working and, and, you know, doing your appointments if you're from Minnesota and had never really been to California. 
Yeah. So it was interesting for better or worse. I believed in the program. I believed in the program. I followed the manual. I did everything that I was told. And not only did I work with Kristen Sunday, I worked with Dan Mead and Chris Mead and Jackie Snyder and Adam Kerchak. And I am grateful for the legacy that I was uh, fortunate to stumble across. And I was super fired up about the idea of just following the program. So they said, make a, make a list of everybody, you know, and I was like, Hey, sorry. I, you know, I just moved here. I don't actually know that many people, but my, my first demo was with my, I'm now married. I have kids. I have a life outside of this, but at the time, my girlfriend, it was her uncle's friend from the post office was my first, first appointment. And I drove out into the woods of Lord only knows, uh, somewhere on the Russian river (laughs) and did an appointment with my girlfriend's uncle's friend from the post office. And at the time, I don't know if this is still relevant, but you know, it was early July. There was a firecracker special going on with the, uh, the homemaker plus eight. And I read the script. I got to the end and I said, so classic or Pearl basically. And she said, classic. I was like, right on. And I wrote up an order and off to the races. That's not, that's awesome. That's so cool. <laughs> And then from there, you just built your lead base and just kept it going. Yeah, she was she was super kind. She called people right on the spot, said, "Hey, I got this nice guy over here, and you know he he gets paid whether you buy anything or not. And you know if you let him come by, he's he's not going to bum you out. He's all right." And uh, yeah, that turned into four or five more appointments that weekend, and that turned into ten or fifteen the next. And then I had a, I mean, I don't know what my fast start was, but I ended up having thirty plus weeks over a thousand and kind of had a nice little streak going and that parlayed into some AM training and whatever came after that. And so, yeah, I fall, I mean, hate to sound like a shill, but I followed the program. I just did everything that I was told to do and it turned out swimmingly. Yeah. What were some of the experiences that stand out from your time with Cutco? Yeah. So those early days, I think the, the most meaningful ones were Kristen and and you, both of you, Kristen in particular, because we had a closer relationship than the one that I had with you. But just the idea that like you can you can be yourself and you can grow as a person and you can hold yourself accountable and you can act with integrity and you can develop your communication skills and your discipline and you can also be fallible and it's okay to make mistakes. And you know, if you if you miss a phone time or you, you know, don't show up for X or Y or Z. I never felt bad about anything I was doing. I never felt like I was letting somebody else down. I felt like maybe I wasn't achieving my full potential. And that was an environment that was really amazing to be a part of professionally. And then I had really great success stories around me. Like I said, Dan Mead and Jackie Snyder and Chris Mead and Kerchak at the time. Like those were those were the people that I learned from. And they were all really cool. I mean, just cool people to be around, to hang out with to have fun with and also got paid at a young age where we're making, making some good money and living a pretty good quality of life. And so that was really impactful in the rep phase. And when I got into management development and I worked with you more and I worked with Mark more and I worked with PJ ultimately, and then Jesse and some other people as the years went on, the emphasis on personal and professional development was just so impactful. I was always hoping that work could be like that. (laughs) And it turned out it could, uh, I just needed to find that spot. And so that was, that was really exciting to be around a a group of people that were 
interesting and passionate about growing as people and growing as professionals and earning high pay, but being cool about it. Uh, that was really attractive to me. Yeah. I like what you said about in working with Kristen, right? You were always made to feel good about who you were and what you were doing, even if you weren't achieving at the highest potential possible, right? There was this feeling of, of uh, being recognized and appreciated. And, um, and I, I just think it's an instructive idea for leaders to think about, you know, how do you leave people when you talk to them? Because we can't always have great conversations when we're managing people. There are times where you have to kick someone in the butt. There are times where you have to have difficult conversations. But do you leave people feeling good in all of your interactions? I think that's a good question to ponder. It's a good litmus test for solid leadership is how you leave people feeling after an interaction with you. And then uh, you also made the point about the emphasis on personal and professional development that exists in the Cutco culture. And that's been a hallmark of our company ever since I started. And even to this day, of course, and when we're working on helping others become better humans, they do better in sales and leadership. They do better with their results. That sort of is a byproduct of helping people be better as humans. And so I've always felt like that's a part of the leadership strategy that anybody in Cutco Vector has is not just helping people do better with their job, but also helping people with their life skills and, and uh, you know, uh, other different personal characteristics. So that's cool that you had that exposure early on. Yeah, very fortunate. I- I'm still to this day incredibly grateful for how I stumbled into that office at that time with that mix of people and uh, the whole hierarchy that existed in that org at the time. I, I feel very fortunate. Yeah. How about uh, management experiences as you were a DM in Stockton and then later Las Vegas? Yeah. So I had uh, a really, uh, I think, fast. I don't know if this is uh, objectively true given your experience, but in my experience, it was very quick to go from a sample kit to an AM role to an SM role to opening my own office, having the keys, doing the carpet angels, you know, recruiting my own team, being the guy when I was still the same age or younger than a lot of the folks that I was recruiting. And I got into that position because I saw the opportunity and I felt like I was groomed well to be successful. And so when I went through management training, when I met with you, when I met with other leaders from around the region and had an opportunity to kind of test my mettle is the way that I saw it is like, it had been a while since my athletic life where I had really been forced to, to test myself uh, against the best and brightest. And I just thought that was so intoxicating. And so I jumped in and I had great training. I had great results. I remember, you know, Stocktown where we get down and Stockton isn't exactly recognized as a super wealthy or uh, high potential zone or opportunity in, in some people's eyes. but man, I love the people that I worked with. And we were, we were passionate as hell. We, we showed up at the first division meeting, you know, banging our chests pre Wolf of Wall Street. We were all about it. And I just remember being absolutely smitten by the idea that like, I can just decide how we show up for anything, anywhere, anytime. And you're going to, we might not beat you, but you'll know we're here, you know? <laughs> and, and that was, that was so fun. 
And then I got uh, really well acquainted with smart people, Carl Gedris and Stacey Paris and Paul Comstock and a handful of other people at that phase. And then later on, I had an opportunity to work with Jay, Jameson, JBJ, uh, for a long time. We still went by Bart until he came into my office. And he's like, hey, man, call me Jameson. I'm like, you're going to be JBJ from now on. And turns out he is. He's still one of my good friends. So I'm just really grateful for the relationships. You know, the learning and the relationships are the stuff that I think about super fondly. And the trips and the incentives and all that stuff is really cool as well. But it was the grind, I think, that type two fun where it's not super fun when you're doing it. But it's really fun after the fact when you can kind of have that memory, that shared experience of adversity with other people that you give a shit about. I don't know if I can swear here, but that's that's the short answer, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, I do once in a while too. What do you feel were the most valuable lessons you learned as you were going through those years? Yeah, I think in the early, again, those early DM days, operating with integrity I think was something that I wasn't innately good at. I was I was innately good at getting people to do what I thought maybe they should do. I wasn't always operating in integrity or being impeccable with my word or holding up my end of the bargain. And the opportunity to not necessarily succeed at that, but certainly be tested on that a lot frequently and see how that manifests, whether you get it right or get it wrong. I found that really instructive. Again, having a having a peer group of like-minded, growth-oriented people was probably the most beneficial thing. And then, of course, the litany of information that came through the org. Like, I never knew about Tom Hopkins or Zig Ziglar or Stephen Covey or any of that stuff. But just being inundated with content to listen to, to digest, uh, to grow, I think really helped me to try and start to understand who I wanted to be as a business person, as a leader, as a professional. And that, that was really impactful. I liked the competition, but I was... Admittedly, I was never a guy that needed to win because I had, just through my own life experiences prior to that, I'd won enough where I wasn't super worried about the trophy or the this or the that. But what I really, really enjoyed was like getting better and also enabling other people to get better and learning from experienced folks that had been around the sun a few times more than I had, how to help people achieve their potential and, you know, kind of shape their aspirations. And that, that was the stuff that really kept me coming back to the well. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It, you know, Tony, I appreciate that you, you know, very candidly and humbly shared that in your early days, you strived to operate with integrity and to be impeccable with your word, but that it didn't always happen that way, but that you evolved and you learned as you went through that. I think that's a common step of development for a lot of young leaders, particularly in Vector. I think most young leaders at times, uh, they over-promote. They over-promote an opportunity in some way, or they over-promote what somebody's going to get from something. They they try to have a lot of like hype and excitement around their promotion, but it doesn't always result that expectations and actual reality match up. And, and I do think that we have to learn how to be great as promoters and, and be great at painting a vision for people, but to do it in a way that's also realistic. And that's one facet of that that I think 
people have to experience. And then another thing I think a lot of young people do that maybe you can relate to is, is sort of over-promising, right? We tell people we'll do stuff. We say, oh yeah, I'll do this. Oh yeah, I'll help you with that. Oh yeah, I'm in on that. But we, we have so much on our plate that some things just slip through the crack. And then we didn't fulfill a commitment, right? Jim, Jim Rohn says, don't overload your back with your mouth. And, yeah. and, and I know that I, I've been guilty of this. Perhaps you relate to this too, is where we, we just overpromise stuff. And that's all part, I feel like, of growth as a young leader, right, is learning that element of integrity and this idea of being impeccable with your word, doing what you say you're going to do and building trust that comes along with that. That's not always the case when somebody's new as a leader. It's something that I think people evolve in. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I always say that uh, good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. So mm-hmm. generally speaking, uh, I have overpromised, as you pointed out. And I think about myself in two minds, right? One mind is the strategist, the planner, the business owner, the operator. I'm really good at that. Man, I'm really good at planning and making sure all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted and every contingency has been considered and the multiple facets of a problem have adequately been processed and synthesized. And I think I'm pretty good at that. The next day, I got to show up to work and execute, right? I got to make that phone call. I got to show up for that meeting. I got to pull that report. I got to do whatever. And the dissonance between those two minds for me has been a, a constant professional battle, especially when I was younger, as you said, errors of optimism, errors of good intent, right? Yeah, I'll call you, man. I'll call you at 6 a.m. We're going to get up together. We're going to grind it out. 6.15 rolls around. I'm like, oh, God damn it. All right. I, how many people did I say I was going to call? Right. Uh, I wasn't great at that. And honestly, I, I, I think I'd be lying if I said I was still if I got amazing at that somewhere along the line, but I'll make the call. Even if I'm not hundred percent, I think that's another important distinction is saying, Hey, I told you I was going to call. I got nothing for you, but I'm on the phone. Are you ready to go or what? Cause I, this isn't going to be a pep talk. You just, I told you I was going to call. Are you awake? Right on. Let's go. Right. Instead of being, I, I let the perfect be the enemy of the good to use another quip. Right. Uh, a lot of times in that execution. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's definitely instructive for a lot of leaders for sure. So that was good stuff. So tell us a little bit about the path from Cutco to Hawk Media. You know, what did you do that led you from one to the other? Yeah. So after the, the summer of 2009, uh, I moved out to Southern California. I had an opportunity in a venture-backed startup to do something that I thought was really interesting, especially in a, in a geography that I thought was interesting. And I took that opportunity, re- realized fairly quickly that it wasn't a great fit uh, for me and the org and uh, you know, a lot, lot of moving parts as there often are. And I'd always flirted with the idea of getting involved in the nonprofit space. I wanted to, again, at that chapter in my life, I wanted to do something, doing air quotes for the listeners that mattered, quote unquote, right? Uh, I had an opportunity to go run a nonprofit organization that was founded in the 80s called the World Business Academy. The mission statement of that business, that nonprofit, was to redefine the role of business as a social partner. So the idea of doing doing well by doing good, and you know the triple bottom line around people, planet, and profits and stuff like this. This organization existed before all that, uh, and I just happened to have some inroads to go be involved in this place. And I thought, you know what, if I'm going to go shake the can and make sales and bring my 
sort of operational mind to a place, this would be a really good one. Realized pretty quickly that wasn't all that it was cracked up to be from the outside. Uh, I also realized fairly quickly that I could make a bigger impact on the world by making more money and, and deploying those resources in the way that I thought was true to me and authentic to my sort of ideals about how the world should work. And so that same guy that founded the nonprofit had also invested in a startup for artist development and sort of a revolutionary download model for musicians. And I had played music in high school and college and growing up and stuff like that. So I had some level of familiarity with the music business. And I told him, I said, look, the nonprofit thing just isn't really, it's not scratching the itch anymore, but if you know of something and he said, well, I invest in this other company and so on. So I ended up moving over there, ultimately taking that whole company over from an operational perspective, turning it around from hemorrhaging money to profitable, paying down our debt, doing all those things and really getting a chance to flex my operational muscles. Along the way, I met a, a fellow named Eric Huberman, who is also a Cutco alumni. Uh, I think he started down in the LA and we kind of became close and mutually aligned in terms of what we wanted to do in the world and our values and just our, our passion for if you're not growing, you're dying kind of mentality. And as that music business was pretty much up and to the right, all the investors and the, the, the primary investor basically decided, you know what, we're going to cut our losses. Uh, selling services to starving musicians is really not a space that we want to be in. And so, okay, cool. Took our licks there. Eric and I, at that point then, were both consulting him before I was at an incubator in Santa Monica called Science, most famously uh, founded by Mike Jones, uh, the MySpace co-founder, and also launched Dollar Shave Club and Dog Vacay and pretty successful history. And he was the VP of marketing for a company called Purevit, which is a vitamin company turned into an activewear company. I helped them build the recruiting model, pretty much directly aped from some of the college programs that I learned at Vector. So we had worked together for long enough where he had more of a reputation as a great marketer in Southern California, in sort of the early-ish Silicon Beach days. And I had built enough chops as an operator sales guy where we had you know, enough credibility where he ventured out and started taking on some personal clients. And then we had a call, we had a conversation at the end of 2013 that was basically like, hey, do we want to do something with this? I often hear that you know, if you and your co-founder argue about who should do what, you probably got the wrong co-founder or the wrong team. And we just really immediately understood what each other wanted to do and what each other were good at and made a lot of sense. Yeah. So you and Eric co-founded Hawk. Tell us about the process that you went through and building it from the ground up. Yeah. So he was consulting uh, as Eric Huberman and then was like, well, I got to call it something other than Eric Huberman. So he called it Hawk Media. And that was for a few months before we had talked at the end of 2013. And again, funny how life works out. He had a trip lined up to go to Thailand or Bali or something. I forget which. And he's like, look, we got to like, I got to do something here. I've got clients that are going to be left in the lurch. And you know, maybe this is time for us to actually do something meaningful together. The original thesis that we were aligned on and still are to this day was that making great marketing accessible to everyone is what we're about. In the world of you know marketing, especially agency, you've got three options. You can hire an agency. Typically, you've got longer-term contracts, high minimums, 
a lot of bloat built into that system. You can cobble together some contractors or you can build an in-house team. And again, there's pros and cons kind of associated with all those. But the original idea was like, look, month to month, a la carte, as much as you want, as little as you want, fractional resources, the same way that IT or accounting or many of these other industries have built fractional resource models. And that was incredibly palatable, especially in the LA startup ecosystem. We signed a lot of clients and we grew really fast. That's pretty cool. So it started out with this month-to-month a la carte approach to being able to uh, have an organization uh, get whatever they needed from you without any sort of major commitment. Um, And that, uh, that was a great way of getting your foot in the door with a lot of these companies. What types of challenges did you have to overcome? Yeah, the biggest ones are when you're, for better or worse, when you're on a month-to-month engagement, people are making a buying decision every 30 days and they're setting their expectations every 30 days. A, a typical agency engagement is a year or 18 months or three years in some cases. So the win conditions are punted very far down the line. So when we would sign someone, we would say candidly, all right, here's the deal. Here's what we're going to do for the first few months. And they're like, well, you're month-to-month. And it's like, well, yeah, but if you hate us, you can bail and vice versa. That was part of the reason we built it that way. But there's still a process, right? Nine women can't make a baby in one month, no matter how much you try. It's, there's stuff that takes time. And we really had to kind of fight tooth and nail for that buying decision every month in the early days. And then it also makes resourcing and operationally deciding what cash flow looks like and where you can spend and where you can grow. Those things were really hard in the early days. And we didn't pay ourselves. I mean, I think we paid ourselves three grand a month for the first year and a half or something like that. We didn't make a lot of money. We invested every hour and every nickel back into the business. So I think the biggest challenges were just that idea of like inertia and getting something off the ground and having an absolutely unwavering commitment to the fact that like we knew we were right. And it's hard (laughs) when there's a lot of indicators to the contrary. And so, you know, you, you described how you went through several years where you weren't making a lot of money and you had this inertia to overcome. But tell us about the success that Hawk is experiencing today. Yeah. So we, you know, napkin sketch at the beginning of 2014, we we're like, all right, if we do a million bucks and two and a half and five and 10 in the first four years, that'd be, man, we'd do backflips, right? And, and then we did, right? I mean, I'm making a very long story short, but we worked our tail off. I got married and had my first kid and bought my first house and started a business all within an 18-month time horizon where we were working 80 to 100 hours a week. And there, I mean, there's a lot of stories. And again, much like I mentioned the type two fun earlier, we had so many hard days, hard weeks, hard months that in retrospect are awesome. Just super bonding experiences that helped us to kind of get to where we are now. And so we we hit all our goals. We you know, employed a lot of people. We won a bunch of awards. We started around one conference table, some Home Depot, Office Depot kind of conference table. And I remember when we first got our second conference table, that was a big deal. And we'll probably touch on culture and stuff like that in a little bit. But I remember we would do 9am standups every day in the office. And this, the second table, the people that sat at the second table at like, five to nine would bang on the tables and go table two, table two, table two. Right. (laughs) So we just had this like, ah, like everyone was about it. And we worked really crazy hard to kind of continue to grow. And then 
fast forward, we employ 165 people in 25 states. We have a venture fund. We have a debt financing company. We have something called the Fly Forward Academy. We are the official sponsor of e-commerce week in LA, endorsed by the mayor and the council. We've won every award under the sun. It's really awesome. <laughs> wow. So you have 165 employees mm-hmm. across 23 states, you said at this point? 25 today. 25 states. And revenues went from, you know, million-ish at the start. And now it's how much? Uh, 23 last year. Million. Yeah, 23 million. And that's measured in fees to your company, right? That's that's, that's, right. Yeah. yeah. If you look at production costs and ad spends and stuff like that, it's probably north of 150 million. It's just not the way we count it. Right. Right. But so 23 million in direct revenue to your company... 165 employees, all built from one conference table. That's right. Six, yeah. And six, no, six or seven years ago. No debt, no board, no investors, uh, bootstrapped the whole thing, super cash conscious all along the way. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. That's awesome. And you, you said something about the uh, Fly Forward. Yeah. The fly, the fly Forward Academy, basically helping uh, kids in sort of disadvantaged situations, get access to real digital marketing education that's pliable as they move forward in their careers. And we just had our first class of this uh, at the end of last year. And obviously COVID kind of kicked our butt in terms of the in-person learning and stuff like that. But we've always had a philanthropic uh, spirit, usually with in-kind rather than just dollars and cents. Uh, we worked with an organization called Orphan Starfish in New York since the beginning and you know, giving kids computers, giving kids access to technology. Eric and I are both really fortunate. I went to a high school. I grew up in a suburb of Minneapolis called Minnetonka. And I took an entrepreneurship, college, uh, entrepreneurship class my junior year in high school. And it's really unusual. My business partner, Eric, grew up in Ojai, which is a small community north of Santa Barbara or just south of Santa Barbara. And he, you know, he had entrepreneurship as part of his early education. And there's a lot of people that forget the educational aspects of consideration for how to be an entrepreneur, but access to the technology or the resources or the guidance. So that was really the intent uh, around starting the academy is basically saying, hey, how do we enable folks that would never have these conversations or access to these kinds of programs or ideas? Maybe it's not for them, but at least give them the option. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And then you also said you have a venture fund as like an offshoot of the company as well, where you're investing in promising startups. And I assume you're providing them with the marketing services to help them grow. Yeah, not mandatory, right? Because there's some rules about that. But uh, <laughs> we, we started making investments off the balance sheet. Again, as soon as we started generating enough money as a business to you know, pay the bills and reinvest back in the business, we took money off the balance sheet and we we recognized really early on that we had a specific and unique perspective around kind of picks and shovels around the e-commerce ecosystem that most people don't because we have this huge test bed. You know, we'll sign more clients in February. Actually, I'll tell you, we've probably signed more clients in February than most agencies will all year, right? And we're not even halfway through the month, just so our volume and the people and the staff and the level of expertise that we have So when it comes to vetting a tool, there's only so much you can do as a venture firm in terms of diligence or asking smart people. And we're like, look, this is a good tool, right? Like we know because our people like it. And so we started making investments off the balance sheet. We got a few things right. 
had some good returns. And we thought, man, if there was a zero on top of all these, wouldn't that be cool? So we started getting other people's money and getting some LPs. And right now, I think our fund markup is almost 4x in less than a year. And yeah, we've been able to write some bigger checks. We don't lead deals, but we you know follow on. Uh, again, mostly around the e-commerce ecosystem. Wow. So you're spinning that plate in addition to running the marketing agency and supporting the Fly Forward Academy, along with, of course, having a family. Uh, A lot lot of plates to spin. It's fun, man. It's super enjoyable. That's the cool part about carving your own path, right? Is it, It never really feels like work. There's challenges, of course, but the idea of like, oh, maybe we could do this. And that's one of the things, especially for people that are venturing out on their own in the world, it became so sexy to go raise a bunch of debt and highlight yourself and all these different publications as we did X and Y and Z. We've just never been beholden to anyone. I mean, can you imagine investors being like, yeah, no problem. Take your eye off that prize, and start a nonprofit academy and start a venture fund and create a totally nonprofitable in-person event in LA four years ago for e-commerce when it was not a thing. Like, there's no way, right? We would never get that sign off. And so because we've never been beholden to anybody, we've just been able to kind of operate with impunity in that way. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. So cool. And you've mentioned to me, Tony, that you know what you do is straight line tied to what you learned at Cutco. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. The, the idea of personal and professional development and bringing your whole self to work and you know, mentorship and servant leadership and all these concepts that, especially pre-COVID, when we were all in the same office, all in the same space, and we were, you know, we were building a team and we were about something. People were bought into the mission and bought into the values. All that stuff is 100% stolen, right? The old, you know, good artists borrow, great artists steal. I stole everything. I built a manual for our salespeople in the early days. My recruiting methodologies to this day are based on vector principles I learned in 2005, right? (laughs) There is nothing truly that I do from a recruiting, sales, marketing, or service perspective, leadership, I guess I should say most importantly, that isn't straight line tied back to vector marketing and the leaders that I emulated and the people that I learned from uh, during that chapter of my life, which is only five years, which sounds, it sounds crazy to say it was five years, you know, 15 years ago now, which is insane. But the way that I talk to people, the books that I recommend, the way that I encourage people to think about work-life harmony rather than balance, which is a fallacy and how to aspire to be better than be the best version of yourself. But, you know, we had a Matthew Kelly speaker, I think at SMC or something like that. that was like about being the best version of yourself. Like these are the things that intentional or otherwise. I don't think I actualized my potential while I was in Vector, but goddamn, that stuff sunk in somewhere because it shows up a lot in my day-to-day now. Yeah. It's really cool to hear you say that, Tony, that uh, you know, even though you may have not actualized all of your potential, while you certainly did well, but all this stuff really set in for you and is now enabling you to have this like rocket-like ascent to success with your company. It's just great to hear. Yeah. Thanks, man. No, it's it's fun. I I appreciate it. I appreciate people like you that have even peripherally been involved and you more so than a lot of people in Vector actually had a decent stamp on my formative years. So 
I appreciate it. Yeah. You said something about uh, work-life balance versus work-life harmony. Uh, can you unpack that concept for us for, briefly? Sure. Yeah. I think balance is a fallacy. I'm going to spend more time at work than I am with my kids in the short term, right? I also think time horizons are important to consider, but I don't want to pontificate too long on this, right? But my day today is mostly focused on work. I'm going to get a few hours skiing in with my kid later tonight, which I'm psyched about. But the truth is, does my work life inform my personal life? Does my personal life inform my social life? Does my social life inform my professional life? And are those things harmonious? I think fallacy, again, uh, balance rather, balance is a fallacy. Putting two things on a scale and comparing days or hours or minutes is a, it's a recipe for some serious, I don't know, unhappiness. And as long as you recognize that if each of those things are in service of the next, you're going to be in a really great spot. And hopefully you line it up right where you've also got time horizons dialed in. My, my grandma still to this day, one of the smartest people I've ever had the opportunity to meet, used to say, do you want a balanced day, a balanced week, a balanced month, a balanced year, a balanced life? Like, what's this idea of balance that you're so infatuated with, right? Because I used to really struggle with that. You know, I'd be at work and I'd be thinking about golf and I'd be golfing and thinking about my girlfriend or wh whatever the thing was, right? And she said, look, man, just seasons of life, <laughs> lock it up for a little while and then you can pick what you want to do next. So I was like, oh, it, it took a while. A, a late bloomer in that way. I don't think I really got any of this stuff until my early 30s, to be real. Yeah, I like that concept that you just shared that uh balance can be a fallacy and that it's more about harmony yeah. between your various roles in life and i think that's a great that's great advice and do you have other advice you'd share for like young entrepreneurs that want to be able to experience the same kind of success as you in the years ahead yeah truly learn right i mean truly learn don't learn to pass the test don't learn to impress a peer don't learn to get a trophy learn right? Digest it. Think about it. You know, measure yourself, make peace in the mirror. Don't worry necessarily as much about how you're stacking up on a, on a push report. Look inside, see if you're growing. Your, your internal barometer for that, I think is going to be way more important than whatever external recognition comes. And I think external recognition is sexy. There's a dopamine hit that happens and it, it's absolutely part of a holistic sort of experience, whether it's recognition or development. But intrinsically, you have to find what gets you out of bed in the morning. And sometimes it takes a while, man. I, I thought I wanted to be a teacher. I thought I wanted to be in a band. I thought I wanted to be a hockey player. I thought I wanted to be a teacher. I thought I wanted to be an architect. I thought I wanted to be in sales. I thought I wanted to run a nonprofit. I thought I wanted to be in the music business. And it turns out, I just really like recruiting and training and developing people. So all those things that didn't really make sense at the time have congealed into a pretty awesome set of experiences that affords me the luxury of not doing what I'm doing. So, but I learned, I learned all along the way, even if it didn't show up. So that, and then develop a work ethic. I mean, <laughs> and Dan, I hope I don't break your heart when I say this, but I was the prototype of guy when I was in Cutco and Vector that just didn't work hard enough. I just didn't, I didn't work hard enough. And I saw myself be that high aptitude guy in my early twenties that started to get my ass kicked around my mid-20s by people that weren't as smart as me, weren't as capable, weren't as naturally gifted, but just worked harder, right? And I could have saved myself a handful of years. I'm grateful for the experience in totality, in the rear view. It's fantastic. But I, I could have saved myself a little bit of heartache if I, I just would have knuckled down from time to time. Yeah. Good stuff. 
good stuff, Tony. I really appreciate everything you've shared here. It's been really insightful for sure. And, uh, fun for me also just to kind of take a little bit of a walk down memory lane with you. So, um, oh, yeah, man. yeah, as you look, uh, into your future, Tony, what are you most excited about? I mean, the most immediate thing I already alluded to, I'm going skiing here. As soon as we hang up the phone, I live in Boise, Idaho. I'm going to take my oldest son up to the mountain. It's dumping outside right now. I'm just watching all this snow come down. I'm super fired up to get up on the hill. This is his first year and he's kind of getting the hang of it. So I'm excited for that. I'm really excited for our business and what I see as just an incredible blue sky opportunity. The marketing ecosystem is incredibly fractured. I think I alluded to this before, but marketers, according to like sentiment analysis and surveys, are more poorly regarded than used car salespeople or Congress. Like it's just not a well regulated or understood industry. And so I'm eager to change that perception. If that includes lobbying Congress someday for a certification or just consolidating, like I said, a very fractured market, I see that as really exciting. Uh, we've made some really cool investments and really cool companies that obviously I'm very excited about. We have an executive team that is, I'm obviously biased, but I think pretty damn good. And I think we're just scratching the surface of where we could be. And yeah, just enjoying the rest of my Idaho winter and getting into some warm weather eventually here. I'm like, uh, you California kids that get to see it all the time. <laughs> all right. Well, that's, that's awesome, Tony. It's great to hear that, uh, you have good things going on in your life outside of work as well. And, uh, such a promising opportunity with, uh, all the growth potential that exists. I'm sure that Hawk is going to continue to ascend, uh, like a rocket and uh, bring more opportunity to you and your family and everybody that you're uh, that you're influencing. So, so it's great to see. Congratulations. And thank you so much for taking time to share with us here today on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure, Dan. And again, thank you for your influence. It, it means a lot. All right. That was Tony Del Mercado, everyone. Hope you liked that. I thought it was pretty cool to hear about just sort of the humble beginnings of Hawk Media and the challenges that they faced in those early days and going through a period of time where there wasn't a whole lot of money being made by you know the founders or by the company itself. And then very low-key, I hope you guys caught the level of success that they're achieving now. I mean, $23 million in direct revenue fees to the company they have 165 employees at this point, which is really incredible. And they have a venture arm of their organization. They have a philanthropic arm of their organization. There is a lot of great stuff going on. And they're in an industry that just has almost unlimited growth potential still. And so I'm sure that revenue and growth of the company is going to explode in the years ahead. And as Tony said, a lot of it is based on his learnings from Cutco, right? Building a great organization like he's built, he talked about it's recruiting, training, and development. It is recruiting, training, and development. And if you're working in Cutco, that's exactly what we as Cutco managers get to practice and master on a regular basis, right? Building a team, recruiting training people, giving them the steps to follow, the track to follow down, and then developing those people over time 
helping them with overcoming their challenges with their own personal growth and painting a vision and helping them achieve their goals and all those things that come along with what we do as Cutco Vector managers. Tony is a great testament to the Cutco Vector program, and he is now replicating elements of that program in building great success. Vector was founded upon these three keys that you've probably heard before, people, products, and programs. Tony talked about the programs and how that has helped him. Of course, we all know the Cutco product is amazing. And Tony had a chance to be around a lot of really cool people that helped make an influence in his life. He talked about his original manager, Kristen Sunday, some of the leaders of that office that were there, Dan Mead, Chris Mead, Jackie Snyder, Adam Kerchak, and many others that he's had a chance to work closely with over his years in the Cutco Vector business. That all set the stage for him to have this great success that he's experiencing today. Cool story, a lot of great stuff. I hope you enjoyed that one. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's episode, please share it with others and consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player. Subscribing to the podcast is free and ensures that future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. And to support our podcast sponsors, visit changinglivespodcast.com slash deals. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives.